Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking with Martin Lubrex, a freelance data visualization consultant based in Belgium. Most recently, he has worked with Eurostat, Thomson Reuters, Google News Initiative, and the World Bank. Before he turned freelance, he was a data journalist at the Flemish newspaper De Tide. In this episode, he talks to us about his work as a data visualization consultant and how he helps organizations communicate their numbers by evaluating, designing, and developing static and interactive visualizations. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Martin Lembrex now. Martin Lumrex, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thank you very much for having me. So Martin, let's just talk about your venture into the field of data visualization. Now you worked as an agricultural economist, you got a degree in bioengineering. How did you first become interested in data journalism? Uh, well, so like many people in the field, uh, my career was a bit, um, yeah, with a lot of twists and turns, so to say. So I graduated as a bioengineer in forestry and nature conservation already a long time ago now. And I worked as a um, as a bioengineer for a couple of years before moving to Latin America. So I've lived in Bolivia for over two years, um, where I indeed was working as an agricultural economist. Um, and while I was working in Bolivia, I started blogging um, to keep my friends and family back at home informed. And that's how I learned how websites work. And also uh, I started writing for a small magazine here in Flanders um, about my experiences abroad. And um, after coming back to Belgium, I ended up um, being or being hired as the webmaster of that website of that small magazine. So that's how I ended up in um, in journalism. And because of my background in engineering, I had this um, affinity with numbers. And um, back then, that was the period that data journalism um, was starting to become a thing. And so um, in the little time I had left on the site, um, I started experimenting with doing some data journalism, making visualizations. Um, and that's basically how I ended up in the field. And later then I was hired by um, um, newspaper that that here in Flanders, where I really worked as a data journalist. Um, and after working a couple of years there, I turned freelance and that's where I am at now. And most recently as a freelancer, you worked on the World Development Report 2021 um, by the World Bank. Um, and that report looks at you know, how to harness the power of data for development to ensure no one is left behind. But I just wonder, tell us about what you did in that report and, and what was that like? Uh, so the um, people at the World Bank, um, well, the, the WDR, the World Development Report, is one of their flagship publications. So it's uh, a big publication um, that is translated into many languages and is also published as a paper book and, and a PDF. Um, but because it was the topic was data, 
Um, and they wanted also something to go with it online um, in a more modern shape or form. And um, so what we tried to do was turn every chapter of the paper report into um, something that is more live online. Um, so the, the tone of voice is a bit lighter. Um, there are a lot of visualizations and animated things in those articles, um, but they do try to stick to the topic of the, the chapters. Um, and so what I did was I developed three of the stories. Um, I helped build the storyline. I, I designed the visualizations um, and, and programmed the, the stories really. And what did that involve exactly? Like what kind of programs and, and what kind of software or design did you use? Yeah, to make the sketches for the visualizations, I, I use what I usually use when I make um, visualizations that is R and the ggplot package. And then we also just made very rough sketches in, in Google Slides to, to show how the storyline would unfold, tried many different things, had many discussions with the authors of the chapters because we were working directly with them. Um, so they also had a big say in, in how everything um, should uh, look and, and how the story would flow. Um, and then to develop the stories, we had a template, uh, a React-based template um, to, to program all the stories. And, and yeah, in that template, of course, all the styling was already there as well. So it was basically also bit the same way of working that we used for the sustainable development goal atlas also for the world bank that we uh, published a few months before so the workflow was a bit based on what we did back then interesting and you worked with a couple of other organizations on that or was it just directly with the world bank team um so the um, for the world development report um for the data heavy stories with with the visualizations i worked with Jan Willem Tulp also a freelancer from the netherlands um so we split up the chapters between us um and yeah we we did some feedback uh, on each other's stories but not so much actually um, and then there was Beyond Words, which is an agency based in London, who um, did the stories um, where there was not a lot of data in. So they did the more conceptual stories. And they also designed the, the styling and they provided us with the template that we could use to um, build our stories. Now, you mentioned that you worked on three data stories. Can you just talk us through one of those? Yeah, so the three topics I worked on were competition. So this is basically about um, in the new data economy, it's very easy to end up with a situation where you only have a, a few very big players. Um, if you think about you know, Facebook and Google, obviously those are the, the big players and they have a big share of the market also in developing countries. So it's very hard for new, small, local players to enter the data markets. Um, and so yeah, governments probably should take action to have a, a healthy ecosystem um, in, in that market. So that was one story. Um, the other story I did was about how countries regulate the flow of data across borders. Um, so some countries have decided that um, whenever 
data is uh, produced, there should always be a local copy within the country. Um, otherwise, the data can leave the country. Um, others have a much more uh, liberal approach, and they basically say, do what you want. We are not going to control what data is flowing in and out. Um, and so these models, different models have um, different advantages and disadvantages, and that's um, what that story is about. Um, then the last one is about building trust. Um, and this is all about um, how do we ensure privacy, for example? How do, do we protect private data? Um, but also, for example, how do we ensure that e-commerce is uh, regulated well? Um, so, yeah, basically, when you move transactions online, then you have to have a way to establish trust between uh, the people involved in the transaction. So um, that story was all about things like cybersecurity, um, how countries are governing the protection of privacy, how uh, governments are trying to enable um, the data economy by having good open data laws, for example. Um, so it was basically about the regulation of, um, of the data economy. Interesting. Now, I mean, COVID-19 has kind of impacted everything that we've been doing. And I'm just curious, you know, this has been a very data heavy event that has, has happened. And I wonder if your experience in the data visualization world, if, if you've had more people coming to you as a consultant um, seeking your skills since this pandemic? Yeah, I think like most people, especially freelancers in the beginning of the pandemic, I was a bit worried because um, there was a lot of talk about the economical crisis that would follow the, the, the health crisis. And um, I my feeling is that maybe a lot of companies or um, organizations would invest less in something like data visualization, which can easily be looked at as something um, extra on top uh, of the core business. Um, and so when, yeah, first fundings need to be cut, maybe that would be uh, data visualization, but I haven't seen anything like that actually. Um, I actually had a few new projects dealing with COVID and like many of my colleagues, I think a lot of people in data visualization have been asked to do something around COVID-19 data. So um, yeah, that was not different for me. Um, and yeah, the one silver lining um, to this whole crisis, I think is that a lot more people have been exposed to data visualization. So they were all over the place. Um, and also more um, less standard techniques like using a logarithmic scale have been moved into the mainstream. Um, and so I think it helps build the level of graphicacy in the general public. Um, and as a consequence, I think there is a broader sense of um, the importance of what data visualization can be, and also um, a broader sense and understanding of how bad data visualization can mislead. So, um, yeah, it has, it has impacted my work a little bit. Um, of course, like all of us, I'm not traveling, um, I'm not attending conferences, which was uh, one of the most 
fun part of uh, of the job. Um, I don't really like online conferences, so I'm a, I'm a bit stuck here now. Um, but uh, yeah, as from a pro professional point of view, um, I think I'm I'm in a good position. Yeah. And I'm just curious, given your background and your experience as a consultant and a data journalist, you know, what coding languages do you use regularly and what design programs do you use? And, you know, what skills can you just not live without to do your job in this in this data visualization and data journalism world? And so I already mentioned R and, and ggplot. So R is my go-to tool to uh, wrangle data. So um, in a lot of cases, clients send me Excel files. Um, and the first thing that I do is load them into R, uh, cleaning them up and turning them into something I can work with. That's always uh, the first part. Um, and then um, the first visualization sketches are usually done in ggplot. Um, and sometimes that's also the final product that I can just finish uh, visualizations in ggplot. But if it needs to be more custom and maybe online and interactive, then I move to JavaScript and um, I use D3 um, for a lot of the visualization work. And lately, it's almost, it's not really more than a year that I started working um, with JavaScript frameworks. So I have worked with Vue and React and also Svelte. Um, so that's something that I recently started using. And um, I feel like it is becoming more and more of my of my job, so to say. So um, a lot of um, web development as well, um, also... CSS frameworks, um, there are many, and I have used uh, already a couple of them, but uh, I think those are the main tools that I use. Um, if it's just for something quick, um, then I turn to Data Wrapper, um, which is a very nice tool for basic charts. And I have also used Flourish um, for client projects even. so. Flourish is a very nice tool to make animated um, things or even stories. You can have a kind of like a slideshow where you put visualization in a sequence and they animate between them, which um, can give a very nice result. And I'm curious, are you self-taught as a developer? Were there certain boot camps you did or did you just kind of have an affinity for it and you, were, you just went for it and learned on your own? Yeah, I've never followed any programming course, um, except for last month I started doing a CSS course because I feel that's my my weaker end. Um, I, I get by in CSS, but I never really understood all the things that I was doing with it. So I started a, a course on CSS, but that's the only programming course I, I ever took. That's interesting, because that's often a question that data journalists kind of like, you know, they, they talk about R and Python. and But yeah, it's really interesting to hear that you also know D3, you're trying to build your CSS skills. Um, and, you know, you obviously know JavaScript, which helps tremendously. Um, is there any advice you have for journalists who are kind of starting out and trying to take that first step and, and build their skills and move beyond the data wrapper and the flourish? I 
think one um, good way to start would, um, if you're an Excel user um, and you're interested in learning to code, is start with the Tidyverse in uh, in R. Um, it's a set of packages they they all work well together. Um, they have the, a shared philosophy. And I find it a um, bit easier to work with and a bit easier to understand than base R. So all the, the functions that come with, um, with R when you freshly install it. And so maybe what you could try is um, all the data operations that you would perform in Excel manually. Um, try to do them in, in R, um, in the tidyverse, um, so that you have a script that does all the manual manipulation that you would do in Excel uh, in a script that you can rerun, and uh, that can be really helpful. Um, and probably one of the best decisions I made in my career as a, as a data journalist and data visualization pe person is to learn R and to learn ggplot. Um, ggplot is part of the tidyverse and it's a package that follows um, a very interesting system on how to build visualizations layer on top of layer. Um, so it's very flexible. Um, and once you know and understand how, how the system works, you can get really creative, but you, it's also very fast. Absolutely. Now, you've designed a lot as a data visualization expert, and I'm just curious, what's your most favorite project you worked on in terms of data visualization? Well, I... I think um, would be my favorite is something that I made already a couple of years ago. It's called Rock and Pole. Um, it's an uh, interactive um, story where uh, you learn how political polls work and what that means for the uncertainty that is inherent in the, the polling results. At the time that I built it, I was working at a newspaper and I was really annoyed about how my colleagues and other newspapers were reporting on political polls. Um, they were focusing on very small differences well within uh, the margin of errors. Um, and so I wanted something that uh, could explain what the uncertainty is um, and, and where it comes from, but without using any statistical formulas. And um, yeah, and in, in, in the end result is quite nice. Uh, I like I still like it very much. Um, I also learned that some people are using it in in classes and statistical classes, mathematical classes. So that's very nice to know that people are using it for educational purposes, which was uh, of course my intention a little bit. I noticed you tweeted about a project showing medieval maps covering historical transportation systems. And I thought that was a very interesting project, but I just was curious, what are some other data visualization projects you've seen out there in or out of the newsroom that you admire? Yeah, um, of course, nowadays it's hard to escape COVID-19 visualizations. Um, so I think one of the pieces that I like the most uh, is the one by Harry Stevens from the Washington Post. Um, over a year ago now, he published an, an article containing um, some small simulations of how disease spread in a population. And it really um, showed why it was important to stay at home because at that time, 
this was all still new for us. And um, we heard these explanations by experts that we um, should reduce our number of contacts and, and um, stay at home as much as possible. But it was still, for many people, not really clear what was going on and why that was important. And these um, small simulations with these moving dots really show you very well um, how disease spread in populations and what happens if you stop moving around and having contacts with others and you see the spread is much slower and the peak is, is much flatter. And it uh, became the most read article um, of the Washington Post website. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Harry about that and writing a little piece on it and it really made an impact. Now, Earlier, you mentioned that one of the things you miss a lot since the pandemic is not being able to go to events and speak at conferences and network and learn. But I'm just curious if you could talk to us a little bit about a talk you gave in 2018 about how open data isn't really open. And I thought this was super interesting. But could you just tell us like your thinking behind that and why you think that is the case? I think the main point is that you have this definition of open data that it should be machine readable. Um, so you can publish data in a PDF. Uh, it should be in, in a CSV file or it should be accessible to an API. Um, and of course, that's really important for people like me being data journalists. Um, but for a lot of people, that's not really open data because they don't have access it. They, they might not know, or most people don't know how to access data from an API. Um, and if they do, they would just see a big table of numbers. Um, so they can't take any meaning out of it. Um, so if you want your data to be really open, and I think a better word might be accessible to uh, a lot of people, then you need to offer it in a format that's accessible to most people, which are um, simple charts with a little bit of explanation, for example. Um, or if you have a big data portal, it's not important how many different data sets you have, how many open data sets you have, but uh, you have to have good search functionality so that people can easily find the, the data um, they need. Um, before downloading anything, people should have a preview of what is in a, a data set, for example. So many different things, sometimes small things, um, that can help more people getting access to the data beyond the technical experts and the data, data savvy people. Um, so in my view, I think um, if you really want to talk about open data, um, you should also go that extra mile to make it accessible data so that um, many more people can have access to that data. Do you think that the pandemic has made the general population maybe more aware of open data? Um, I think so, because, uh, for example, here in Belgium, we had, for a long time, we didn't have data about vaccinations. We didn't know how many people were vaccinated. There was no uh, open data about it. Um, and then one volunteer started collecting the data on his own and he de developed his own website. Um, and then all media and journalists were turning to this dashboard developed by this one guy in his spare time as being the source of data. Um, and yeah, it's people like that 
became more the center of attention and it, it also became clear that it shouldn't be that way that um, we depend on one volunteer uh, to get access to this data that is so important nowadays. Maybe the general population doesn't care where the data comes from or even doesn't care if the data isn't there, but the people in the field um, and, and the, the journalists, they definitely have seen how important it, it is to have um, good open data. Now, in data sets, we come across a lot of missing data. Um, what should journalists be mindful of when handling missing data? Um, so I think one important aspect there is the, the metadata and the, the data about the data. And um, I think we sometimes must be more explicit about um, this um, metadata and, and maybe even show it. Um, I'm now involved in a new project and we are really thinking about not only visualizing the data, but also visualize the metadata. So showing how many missing years we have in the data, for example, or showing um, if the data is really from a government database or maybe it's from a survey and then um, you have these confidence intervals in the data. So uh, I think maybe being more explicit about metadata can help um, both yourself as the editor or creator of a data story and as the, the reader who is consuming um, that information. And I'm also just curious, like, what data visualization experts or newsrooms or journalists do you follow and admire? Um, and who do you look up to sort of in the data, in the data journalism world? Yeah, I think there's obviously John Byrne Murdoch from the Financial Times who did an incredible job during the early days of the pandemic. Um, I noticed that um, when his first line chart with all the country curves going up, when I uh, saw it again after one year, I really felt back the emotions I had back then at the beginning of the pandemic. So it was really an, an influential data visualization for me. And he's still cranking out a lot of um, other data stories about uh, the pandemic. Um, so he's obviously doing excellent work. Um, I recently saw a talk by Nadia Popovich from the New York Times, uh, from the, the Climate Desk. And what they really try to do and what they really do well is trying to connect the, the climate change um, situation, which is at an enormous scale and it's very hard to relate to as a small human being. And they try to make that connection to the day-to-day -day life. And um, I think that is something really, really important that we um, should be doing more of. So Nadia definitely is someone um, to follow, I think. Um, and maybe a last person to mention is um, Lisa uh, Roast from Data Wrapper. She has been writing some excellent blog posts on many aspects of data visualization, like the use of color, um, which she's um, actually quite famous for now. Um, but she um, has written about a lot of different topics on data visualization, and she, she's all, also a, a good keynoter. So her, her talks are always amazing. Um, so... Yeah, everything that she's been writing or, or saying um, is, is always great. So I, that's definitely worth a follow too. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we just had her on the podcast, so I have to <laughs> agree with you on that. Um, and finally, I'm just curious, you know, I'd like to end on some takeaways that you have for data journalists. You know, what's your advice? What do they need to be mindful of in their data storytelling? I think the most important thing is trying to relate things to the day-to-day life of people. What I actually just mentioned, um, it's not always easy, but numbers are very abstract. Um, So if you want to make a connection to the reader, then you need to touch them in their day-to-day life. Um, So there are many different techniques that you can use to do that, um, but it's not always easy. Um, so I, I would try to focus on that, bringing the, the, the human touch into the stories you bring, um, because that's how people will get engaged with, uh, with your work. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Okay, thank you very much for having me. This was a nice conversation. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? Why not subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts? I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.